So as we've walked through Revelation, uh, we are in this uh, sort of second major section of the book. The, we, chapters 2 and 3 showed us uh, Jesus speaking to his churches, uh, represented by seven local congregations in Asia Minor, uh, which really represent all the churches in all the age. So not only messages to those, those local congregations in the first century, but messages that are relevant to all the church throughout uh, the era between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so that first section in chapters 2 and 3 sort of spanned in that sense. Uh, all of uh, human history between the comings of Christ. The second section that we began a couple weeks ago uh, shows us the, the vision of the throne room of God in heaven. And so John uh, came, uh, saw a door standing open in heaven and was called up in the spirit to behold it, and he saw God seated, seated on the throne. And so we saw in chapters 4 and 5, God, the Father, worshipped and praise for his work of creation and his sovereign rule over the world. We saw in chapter 5, uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, like the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the, the Lamb of God, uh, taking the scroll, being crowned as king, being given authority to rule over the world and to unfold the contents of God's sovereign purposes throughout human history. And so then last week uh, we looked at uh, the first part of chapter 6, which is 1 through 11, where we're the Lamb opened the first five scrolls, or the first five seals of the scroll, right? So they're sealed up, and one piece at a time, it's, it's unfolded. And we looked at the first five uh, seals last week. Today, we're going to consider the opening of the sixth seal, the sixth seal. Now, if, if seals one through five of the scroll reveal concurrent realities, that is, things that are true together, that characterize the entire age between Christ's first and second comings, the sixth seal then reveals the culmination of the age. To state it plainly, chapter 6, verse 12, all the way through chapter 7, depict the end of the world and the establishing of Christ's eternal kingdom that will be ushered in by his return to the earth. So that's what's going on in the opening of this sixth seal. And so this becomes the first of six depictions throughout the book of the return of Jesus Christ. We actually don't see real clearly, specifically, the returning of Jesus in this seal, as you'll find. But the events that we do see unfold are clearly connected to his return. And so each depiction throughout the book of Revelation will focus on a different element or look at a different uh, or look at the same event, you know, the return of Jesus to the earth from a variety of angles. And so uh, the sixth seal will look uh, at the return of Christ from this particular angle. And what we'll see is that there are two particular broad effects of the return of Christ. Number one, judgment for the wicked. And number two, salvation for the church. When Christ returns, the wicked will be judged and the church will be saved, finally and fully saved. I'm going to read to you verses 12 through 17 of chapter 6. We're going to take this one section at a time. So let me read for you Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, 
and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Terror or delight. These are the two possibilities awaiting human beings at the end of history when Jesus Christ returns. Terror or delight. We're going to consider together the first of these possible futures. The end of chapter 6. Judgment for the wicked. Now I want you to notice one thing about this passage. First of all, there are three, if you will, representations of the number six. It is the sixth seal. There are six events or six effects of the opening of this seal. You'll notice an earthquake, the sun becomes black, the moon becomes like blood, the stars fall to the earth, the sky vanishes like a scroll, is rolled up and mountains and islands are removed from their place. That is six particular uh, uh, sort of cosmic responses to the return of Christ. And then there are six sort of classes of people that are affected by this. Look in verse 15. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. Everyone is a, is a umbrella for slave and free, probably generally regarded as lower classes of, of people given the, the scope and the spectrum of this range, hid themselves. So six groups or, or classes of people are affected and run and hide from the destruction that is coming. So I think that the number six is significant because as we've seen throughout Revelation already up to this point, the number seven represents Wholeness. It represents completeness. It's, it's the fullness of God's plan, the fullness of his purity, of his perfection. So when you see seven, for example, seven churches addressed, uh, seven stars in the hand of the Son of Man, etc., it refers to the fullness of God's plans, the fullness of God's people. Indeed, the scroll has seven seals. It is the complete plan of God for human history. The number six, therefore, as we find later, is called the number of man, because it's not quite to seven, right? If seven is completeness, six falls short of it. And so six is repeatedly used to represent mankind in their fallenness. And so the fact that it's the sixth seal and there are six sort of cosmic effects and there are six classes of people listed as hiding from the destruction uh, that is befalling them is symbolically important because it represents that this is uh, the wrath of God befalling wicked humanity. 
All right, this is the number of man, this is the sixth seal, and therefore bringing judgment to the wicked. This is a fearful passage. It is, it is terrifying to read. And if you place yourself in the shoes of those who don't know the Lord Jesus, who have not trusted in him for their salvation, who do not have the covering of the blood of Christ, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes, it is a terrifying reality that is coming. It's terrifying to think of the world sort of falling apart just on its own. If you just consider the natural order breaking down, and as this depicts uh, the sun stops shining, there's earthquakes, the, the moon turns to blood, stars are falling from the sky, the, the sky itself is rolled up like a scroll, mountains are removed and, and disappear. It is a terrifying thought. It's a, it's a terrifying picture. But even still, more terrifying is the reality behind those physical uh, things. And you see the people are calling out in verse 16 to the mountains and rocks and indeed asking for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. We want to die by these falling mountains because it's better than facing the wrath of God. That's the, the terrifying reality behind the destruction, the falling apart of the created order. Now, is this exactly how the world will end? Is this a, a literal depiction of what is going to happen piece by piece, step by step, when Christ returns and judges the wicked? We don't know. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. We need not press the language of Revelation to the point of literal precision. We've talked about that a good number of times uh, throughout this. So the point uh, of the passage is not to forecast a play-by-play -play of the world's final hours. Uh, oh, there's an earthquake. Okay, the next thing that's going to happen is I think the sun's going to go black. Oh, the sun went black. Okay, now we're waiting for the moon. I don't think it's supposed to be that sort of literal in terms of exactly what's going to unfold. The point of these verses is to portray the terror and destruction that accompany the unmitigated wrath of God upon an unbelieving world. It is a certain reality that is yet to come. Earthquakes, failure of sun and moon, stars falling to earth, sky being rolled up, mountains moved from their place. The created order is falling apart. This is clearly the end. All right? I think what, what we see unfolding at the end of Revelation 6 is clearly the end of the world as we know it, the end of this age and the final judgment of God upon his people. Um, not, excuse me, not upon his people, upon the unbelieving world, the, the wicked world. So this is a, a, a passage, this one and all of chapter 7. Uh, I do not have time to walk you through all these things, but this, this is a passage that if you have a Bible that has like a cross-reference section, it would be really good to walk through this and look at those cross-references, even a glance at cross-references, you know, that, that tells you where, where in the Bible things like this occur will show you how fully these passages are steeped in Old Testament language and images. Uh, just about every one of these, uh, even cosmic disasters, the earthquakes and the sun blacking out and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling, 
just about every one of those things is directly drawn from some Old Testament prophet. Uh, one example is Isaiah chapter 34, which speaks of the, the hosts of heaven fleeing away and the skies being rolled up. Uh, the language is, is almost identical to what we see in Revelation chapter 6. It is, uh, it's all over uh, the place here. And so it's important for us to see, again, the vision that God gives to John is not out of nowhere. It's not in a vacuum. It's indeed consistent with what God has been revealing to his people for thousands of years, even via the prophets in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the language of judgment is exactly reflected throughout uh, this portion of chapter 6. And indeed, in chapter 7, when we're past the judgment, there are, there's still a lot of imagery that we'll find. One of the recurring motifs in the Old Testament that's probably the most important one to draw attention to for, uh, for our purposes today is the motif of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. You see it referenced there at the very end of chapter 6. They, the, the people are calling upon the rocks and mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And verse 17 it says, For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The great day of their wrath. The day of the Lord. The great day. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament from the prophets to the people of God, depicting and representing God's judgment. And there were often judgments within history, like temporal judgments that God would bring upon his people, Israel, uh, under the old covenant that used the same kind of language. And so you can find the, the day of the Lord language in Joel chapter 2, in Zephaniah chapter 1, in Malachi chapter 4, a bunch of other places, but that's just a few quick examples. Again, I don't have time to go there and read them to you. But uh, it, it's, it's worth studying and looking up on your own. But this is a recurring pattern, a recurring theme in the Old Testament, that the day of the Lord. And often, again, it's a day of judgment in history uh, that, that he has uh, visited judgment upon a particular people or a particular place. For example, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19 says, people shall, speaking of uh, the second uh, exodus from from Babylon. It says, People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Right? So you get the judgment of God on the day of the Lord as this, this vivid and, and recurring theme in the Old Testament. And so John in Revelation 6, in this vision that he's given, he takes up this common theme of the day of the Lord and he applies it to the final climactic judgment of God upon the wicked at the end of time. So this is the great day of the Lord. And indeed they call it the great day of wrath. And I want you to notice something else before we move on from this section about the judgment that's to befall the wicked. I want you to notice who is said to be wrathful. Who is said to be angry in this verse Verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. So the wrath is spoken of specifically as coming from him seated on the throne, that is God the Father, which 
doesn't surprise us that much because I think we're used to thinking of the judgment to come, the, the holiness and the sort of wrath against sin as belonging mostly to God the Father. That's how we tend to think about it. But the Lamb, right, the Son of God, Jesus, he's the nice one, right? That's how we tend to break this up in our minds. That's not biblical, that's not faithful, but we probably oversimplify it. God the Father is the kind of angry one, and Jesus the Son is the one who sort of like, Pats his father on the back and goes, just calm down, it's going to be all right, right? Just, I've taken care of this, right? So God, the father's the angry one and the son's the, the nice one. But that's not what they say, is it? Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. There's this, this myth that the God, for example, of the Old Testament is angry and vengeful and mean. But the God that we see in the New Testament is, is kind and generous and merciful and, and compassionate. As though the Bible presents us two different gods. Or God used to be mad and then he saw a therapist and now he's feeling better. Right? That, that's not the picture of God in the Bible. In fact, if we're going to see a, a, a faithful and consistent picture of God throughout Old Testament and New Testament, we're going to find both that God is angry at sin and judges sinners, both in the Old Testament and in the New. And we're also going to find that God is merciful and compassionate towards sinners, both in the Old Testament and in the New. He is both just and merciful throughout the scriptures. There's not a just and angry God in the Old Testament and a peaceful and loving and merciful God in the New Testament. It's the same God. And the wrath that is to come is inescapable for those who are not hidden in Christ. God is a warrior. And the scene that will unfold at the end of history will make it very plain. God is a God of justice and he's a God of grace. He punishes the wicked and he bestows mercy and favor upon his beloved. He's always been that way. He continues to be that way. He will be that way into eternity. Romans 11 verse 22 says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. He is kind and he is severe. These are realities we need to hold together. Let me make a few applications for us on this passage regarding the, the judgment of God upon the wicked that's to come. Number one, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. This is maybe just an extension of what I was saying a second ago, but we tend to like to think of the, of the God of the New Testament and the New Covenant as being kind and, and gentle and generous, and he doesn't have any space for, for vengeance. He doesn't have any space for wrath against sin. But again, that's, that's not the case. We, we have to leave space in our understanding of God for him to remain wrathful towards sin because he is holy and because he is just. If he's going to be just, he must maintain that heart towards sin. He must maintain the hatred of injustice and unrighteousness that is pervasive among fallen humanity. The how long of the martyrs in verse 10, you remember we, John saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and their testimony underneath the altar of God, and they were crying out to God, 
O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, that how long of the martyrs is answered in these verses. Not in terms of a timeline. He doesn't tell them how long they have to wait. He doesn't tell them exactly when this judgment is going to fall. But in terms of the certainty of the coming of this day of judgment. This day of wrath. Remember that while you may endure injustices in this world, you may be the subject of slander or abuse at the hands of those who hate you. Nevertheless, be assured, righteousness wins. God will vindicate his own righteousness and his people who have been mistreated and the victims of injustice. Tom Schreiner says, a day of reckoning is coming, a day when the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated forever. And so we need to remember, leave room for the wrath of God. Just as Jesus endured the, the suffering and shame and disgrace and injustice of the cross, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus remembered there's a day of justice coming. And so I can endure the hardship and the injustice of the cross and leave room for the wrath of God. That's what he was doing. And he calls us to do the same. Leave room for the wrath of God. Second application, pray and work for the salvation of those around you. Pray and work for the salvation of those around you. Friends, how ought this reality, the certainty of the coming judgment upon the wicked, how ought this to affect our hearts toward those who don't know him? Our relationships toward those who are separated from him and indeed under his wrath. The wrath of God and the Lamb will befall everyone who has not turned to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And that plight should move us, should motivate us toward mission and toward evangelism and toward love of neighbor and toward acts of kindness and words of truth that present the reality of the kingdom of God, invite people to become subjects of that king by placing their trust in him, and to fearfully remember the day of judgment is coming. And then finally, turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. For each one of us, that is the, the needed exhortation in the light of this coming judgment. Hide yourself. Hide yourself in the ark of Christ's redemption that you might escape the floodwaters of judgment and destruction to come. The judgment of God is coming. And for those who are hidden in Christ, they will be protected. Trust in Jesus Christ so that you too can escape that judgment to come. Well, those enduring the wrath of God in this scene at the end of time as Christ returns and brings the wrath of God and the Lamb, those enduring the wrath ask sort of rhetorically, it seems, in verse 17, who can stand, right? The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And chapter 7 answers that question. Let's look together at chapter 7. I'm going to read all 17 verses to you, and then we'll walk through it a bit together. After this, I, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. 
Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who can stand in the day of the wrath of God and the lamb? Those who have been sealed by God's grace in the gospel. Those who have been sealed by God's grace in the gospel are the only ones who can stand in the day of of wrath. These two passages, the paragraph at the end of chapter 6 and the paragraph here in chapter 7, could not be more different from one another. The doom and, and terror and pain and anguish and judgment in chapter 6 is out of view as we see this image of peace and prosperity and joy and blessedness in the presence of God, it could not be more starkly different. And so the second reality that the sixth seal reveals to us, the second reality that will be brought about at the coming of Jesus is salvation for the church. That's what chapter seven is all about. So it starts 
with, with the four angels at the four corners of the earth. Again, this represents probably not literal, I mean, the earth doesn't have corners per se, right? So it, it's said uh, to, to encompass all of, of creation, all of the world. So you could think in directions, north, south, east, west. And there's an angel at each corner, right? The furthest reach of each direction. And they're ready, right? They've been given authority by God to shake it up so that all the events of the end of chapter six come about. And so it's like we've kind of jumped back in time just a little bit in this vision. So he saw all the destruction, the falling creation, and then there's like a, a pause, and we backtrack. Okay, so now the angels at the four corners of the earth are ready to begin the judgment, right? To, to begin enacting the judgments that God has given them to enact. But there's one who comes one angel who, who cries out with a loud voice, who, who is seen holding the seal of the living God, and he calls out to them and says, wait, right? don't enact the judgment of God, the wrath of God upon the world until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. This is a precious reality. This is the hope of God's people. The judgment of God will wait until his people are sealed. In Revelation 14, we'll see this same group of people again. Revelation 14.1, uh, we see this 144,000. And the seal on their foreheads is more clearly defined in that passage. It tells us the Lamb's name and the Father's name were written on their foreheads. So it seems likely that the seal that is spoken of in chapter 7, is the name of God and the name of the Lamb impressed upon their foreheads. Again, not literally, like everybody in heaven has a tattoo across their head of the name of Jesus, but as a symbol of, their, of God's ownership of them. The seal kind of invokes like the signet ring of a king that would be used to, to authenticate messages and decrees and letters that came from him, and it would be used to indicate the ownership of all that was his, Right? So this seal is a mark of belonging. It's a mark of ownership. And the seal on the forehead of the servants of God is a contrast, a clear and obvious contrast with uh, the mark, uh, with those who accept the mark of the beast. We haven't gotten to that yet, but in chapter 13 and 14, and again in verse 20, we'll see reference to uh, the dragon and his beast, which are clearly Satan and, and his uh, workers. Uh, the beast comes forth, and some, many, receive the mark of the beast upon their forehead. And so there's a clear contrast, again, between the people who are sealed with the name of God and the people who are sealed with the name of the beast, right, the devil. And so this seal on the forehead of God's people represents ownership and protection. God will jealously guard and faithfully keep those who are his. Judgment waits until he is certain that his people are protected. Well, who exactly are these sealed ones? That's the, one of the obvious questions that sort of jumps out to us as we read uh, this chapter. I believe that these servants of God who are sealed by the name of God are the redeemed people of God from every nation, namely the church. It's all God's redeemed people through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a few reasons for that, and we could have lengthy discussions about it, and there's obviously different takes on this. Some people see the tribes in the beginning of chapter 7 indicating 
a, a, a clear and strong distinction between Israel, for example, and, and the church. I don't think that that, that that distinction exists. But here's a few reasons that I think that the, the sealed ones are all of those from every nation who are redeemed uh, by the blood of Christ. First of all, uh, the numbers here are clearly symbolic. Right? Just as throughout Revelation, when we find numbers, we find seven, we find six, we find thousands. It's, it, it is dangerous, I think, to interpret those things as literal things. So when you have, for example, 144,000 people, does that mean that only 144,000 people of all of human existence actually get saved and end up in heaven? Believe it or not, there are people who believe that. Not Christians who believe that, but there are people who believe that. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Uh, so I, we need to be careful not to press, again, a, a literal rendering onto these things. Numbers are, are everywhere in Revelation, symbolic of some other reality. And so the 12, and clearly he lists us 12 tribes, and, and 12 tribes times 12, that's 144, so the fullness and completeness of, of Israel times 1,000, right, even meaning uh, 144,000. So symbolically, these numbers represent uh, a sort of a fullness here of, of the people of God, even though they're depicted here as, as the Jewish people. Another reason is that the configuration of tribes, the way that these tribes are listed, does not match any Old Testament listing of tribes. If you go to any of the places in the Old Testament where all the 12 uh, tribes of Israel are, are listed, this is different from all of them. In a, in a number of ways. First of all, three of the tribes that are included here, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, uh, descended from uh, concubines rather than from Jacob's wives, Leah and, and Rachel. And so they, it seems a little strange to include them in, in this list of the sons of Jacob, because generally how the tribes of Israel were identified. The tribes listed are not all sons of Jacob at all, for example. They're not all the sons of Jacob. So Dan is not listed here. Dan was one of the sons of Jacob and, and one of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. He's not here at all. This list does not include Dan. Interestingly, Manasseh is included. But instead of Ephraim being included, because Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph, actually you have Joseph and Manasseh, but no Ephraim. Like It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't match the, the, the tribe listings that we find in the Old Testament. Another example is that Judah appears first. When in every list of the tribes in the Old Testament, Reuben was always listed first because he was the firstborn. He was the oldest son of Jacob. And so Reuben was listed first, but not here. He's listed second after Judah. Why would Judah be listed first? Who did we learn or who were we reminded in chapter five comes from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So again, there's a, there's a symbolic uh, uh, direction that even the listing of these tribes are pointing to. This is Christ's people, right? This is not just the ethnic Jewish people. This is the people that Jesus Christ has redeemed. Another argument, uh, the last one I'll, I'll share with you uh, this morning, is uh, a recurring pattern that we see here that we also saw in chapter 5. So if you were to look back at chapter 5, verses 4 and five, you would find that John hears a name and an Old Testament image, right? So there's no one found worthy to open the scroll. He begins to cry. 
And then one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John hears before he sees. And what he hears is an Old Testament image, namely the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's an image from the Old Testament. But when he looks in verse 6, what he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That is a New Testament fulfillment. The lion of the tribe of Judah is an Old Testament image that he heard. And what he saw was the New Testament fulfillment of the lamb of God slain for his people. And you have that same pattern appearing here in chapter 7. In verse 4, he hears the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Right? He hasn't seen them yet. He hears an Old Testament image, namely the tribes of Israel times 12 times 1,000. And when he looks in verse 9, what he sees is a New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament picture, namely a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages. So I think that the, the innumerable multi-ethnic people in verse 9 is the same group of people as the, the 144,000 sealed tribes of Israel at the beginning of chapter 7. I think they're one and the same. So the, the tribes of Israel listed in the first half of 7 are a symbolic picture, a representation of the full ingathering of the people of God redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ from every language, tribe, nation of the earth. All right? So I think we have this innumerable multi-ethnic uh, group of the people of God represented here. And so the image in the beginning of chapter 7 with these 12 tribes, 144,000, is complementary with the innumerable multitude of verses 9 through 17. So the ones who are sealed, right, the ones who are protected from the judgment that's to come are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, Jews and Gentiles alike, the one people of God. And indeed, this is a beautiful and vivid depiction of the church. This is a beautiful depiction of the people of God who don't all look the same. They don't all sound the same. They don't all come from the same cultural heritage. It, it, it's, a, it's an innumerable multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And it reminds us that God's redemptive purposes from the beginning have been to redeem the nations through the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15 and when he promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and then reiterates it in 15 and 18 and throughout when the Abrahamic covenant is mentioned it always says and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was God's plan from the beginning. To bless all the nations of the earth through the seed that would come from his line namely the lion of the tribe of Judah the Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose has been to redeem a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural people for himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is ultimately why we as 
Christians must denounce and dismantle all forms of racism and ethnic prejudice that seek to infect the church. Believe me, it is trying to infect the church. It does in many places and cases. It's not only because people from every tribe and people in language bear the image of God on their souls, which makes them intrinsically valuable and, and worthy of dignity and love, but it's also, and perhaps even more importantly, because people from among the varied ethnicities and cultures of the world throughout the ages will be among the one redeemed people of God. Jesus shed his blood for people of every racial and ethnic identity on the earth. And if you tend to look down on people with different skin tones or speak different languages or have different cultural norms than you, you're going to be pretty uncomfortable in the new creation. Because some of those folks are going to be your neighbors and fellow choir members throughout eternity. This has been the redeeming purpose of God from the beginning. And we see it beautifully fulfilled in this vision of, of the new creation this vision of the eternal state or the people of God redeemed from every tribe and nation and language of the earth are before the throne of God, protected from the judgment and the wrath that's coming on the world. So when John sees this great multitude, an elder, one of, one of the elders that's been around the throne uh, sort of ironically, I think, asks John, uh, who, who are these who are, uh, who are wearing these white robes? This is verse 13. One of the elders said, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And John says, sir, you know, right? Why are, why are you asking me? I think the reason he's asking is just draws attention to them, right? Who do you think these people are? Sort of a teaching moment, right? And John says, you know, why don't you tell me, please, right? Sir, you know. And so the elder's answer is this. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, in that phrase that they're coming out of the great tribulation, some see a reference to a specific seven-year period of intensified uh, suffering uh, on earth immediately prior to Christ's return. And so this would be God basically bringing his people out of that period of suffering. So some would say that they see the, a rapture of the church before this period of, of increased tribulation on the earth. I don't think that that's uh, what, what's going on here. Uh, in fact, I think that the, the tribulation uh, is expressed as the, the entirety of, of this age between the first coming of Christ and his second coming. John himself identified himself to his readers at the very beginning of this letter as a fellow, uh, a partner in the tribulation and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so I think, I think the tribulation is this whole age. We are living in the tribulation just as John was living in the tribulation in the first century AD, right? So this is the tribulation. And what we've seen very clearly depicts the end of the world, right? The end of time, the end of human history as judgment falls and God's people are gathered into his new creation forever. And so the coming out of the tribulation here, I don't think is the church being raptured before the tribulation starts. I think it's 
that judgment has come to the earth and God has gathered his people to himself for eternity. So I think this is saying their time of suffering is over, right? The, the tribulation, this whole age that's marked by all the stuff we've seen in the unfolding of these seals, the war and, and famine and pestilence and violence and death that befall the earth throughout this age, it's over for the people of God. God has marked them on their heads and removed them. It's, their suffering is over and now the judgments can fall on the earth. And I think all of that is likely to happen sort of concurrently with, with one another. They're coming out of the tribulation and their suffering is over. At the end of human history, when Jesus returns to the world, the redeemed people of God will be spared the wrath of God and the Lamb. And they will emerge from the tribulation into eternal safety and blessedness. Why do they escape the wrath of God? This is probably the most important verse in this whole passage. Why do they escape the wrath of God? The elder tells John, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. If that image sounds strange, if the notion of a robe being made white by dipping it into red blood is odd and doesn't make sense, let it be a reminder to us of the miracle of redemption. All of these people in this innumerable multitude who are singing God's praises and enjoying the blessed presence of God forever, every single one of them is a sinner, a rebel, an enemy of God, a hater of God, a lover of self, whom God has miraculously saved and redeemed. The saints in the new creation, you, me, all who trust in Jesus, are sinners who have been made clean by the death and resurrection of Jesus, applied to our souls by faith, bringing spiritual life to, to dead souls and making of us new creatures after his own likeness. Praise God. And this is what the seal of God really represents, right? It shows us, it pictures for us the protection of God, the ownership of God. But what it signifies is that they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The people who are sealed, the people who are protected from the wrath and judgment to come are those whose sins have been forgiven, who have been purified and made clean by the blood of the Lamb. It is Christ's death on the cross in their place that earned for them these white robes. And the seal of God on their foreheads is a mark that they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Tom Schreiner says, The robes of the redeemed are white, not on account of their inherent righteousness, but because of the cleansing atonement of the Lamb who gave himself for their sins. Praise God. Let me ask you in the words of the old hymn, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? In the soul-cleansing blood? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And to those who have been washed by this blood, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, that seal of God is ours and we are protected from wrath and judgment 
to come. The last three verses in chapter 17 paint us two uh, images, give us two images of the new creation. And again, I think this is end of time, eternal kingdom stuff. This is, the, this is the new creation in its fullness, in its finality. Here's what we see. We see two images, the image of a temple and the image of a shepherd. Look at verse, verse 15. They, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The throne where God is sitting is pictured in the Ark of the Covenant. The, the mercy seat between the cherubim, that was a picture of, uh, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies of God's rule and God's reign over them. So the throne of God is, is, is pictured in, in the temple imagery of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And it says plainly, they, will, they serve from day and night in his temple. We learn later in Revelation chapter 21 that there is no temple because the whole creation is his temple. He's there. He's, he's among his people in the new creation. And so again, it's a symbol of the presence of of God, and that's the last phrase that we see there in verse 15. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Indeed, the verb for shelter is the Greek skenao, which means to tabernacle over, to spread a tent over. This is the language of temple. This is the language of God's presence. They are before the throne of God. They serve him. They do his work. They worship him day and night in the temple, and he shelters them. He tabernacles over them with his very presence. And then the image of the shepherd is, is beautiful and evokes a lot of other biblical images and language that we're familiar with. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's directly from Isaiah 49, verse 10, when the people of Israel were coming back into the land of Judah from Babylon. He said this, Isaiah said this to them, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Almost verbatim. I look at, compare that to verses 16 and 17. They're not scorched by the sun or any heat. They're led to springs of living water. All right, so this is the, sh the shepherd of the people of Israel is now fully and forevermore the Lamb of God. Verse 17, the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's unusual for a lamb to be a shepherd, right? A lamb is a sheep, but this is no ordinary lamb. The lamb of God is also the shepherd of the flock. The good shepherd of John 10 who lays down his life for the sheep. And so the people of God are in his presence, shepherded to living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We can scarcely imagine such an existence. The world that we live in is so broken and so riddled with turmoil and pain. Our own hearts are so marred by sin and distortions. It is almost unimaginable, this kind of peaceful, prosperous, joy-filled life. Oh, to be free from pain. Anxiety, grief, depression, fear, disease, goodbyes, 10,000 other sorrows of life in this fallen world. Endless peace, perfect delight, 
in the presence of our King and Shepherd forevermore. That is what God promises to those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So the sixth seal of the scroll then reveals to us the end of human history and the two possible paths for human beings to follow into eternity. The path of judgment, the path of the just wrath of God and the Lamb against sin, rebellion, and unrighteousness, and all the terror that comes along with it. Or the path of peace, the path of forgiveness and cleansing in Christ that leads to endless joy and love in the presence of God for eternity. Perhaps it seems almost too ridiculous to ask, but which one of those do you prefer? Which one of those sounds like the sweeter future? The elder told John in verse 14 that the saints coming out of the tribulation had washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And then he said, therefore, they are before the throne of God. William Hendrickson says, only those who have placed their confidence in Christ and his atonement appear before the throne. So if you want that future, if the future you hope for is the path of joy and peace and prosperity in God's presence forever, then you've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Draw near to God. Sin and brokenness and all, and admit your need for his grace to cover your sin. Name Jesus Christ as Lord. Trust in him as Savior. Wash your robe in the blood of Calvary's cross, and you will escape the wrath of God to come and be delivered into eternity of joy in the presence of God and his people. Only those who have rested their lives and eternity upon the finished work of Jesus in their place can have the confidence to welcome the return of the king to earth because it brings terror. It brings destruction and judgment, and yet the people who are sealed by God can welcome it nevertheless and not fear it because they know that in Christ they have nothing to fear. They are the ones who can say, along with John in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen.